Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Okay, everybody. On this show, I'm joined by a modern-day warrior, Rourke Denver. Most of you are going to recognize Rourke from his movie, Act of Valor, or a lot of you perhaps have read his books, Damn Few and Worth Dying For, great books. Most certainly, y'all have seen him on the Meat Eater television show, where him and Steve Rinella hunt black bear up in Alaska. I'm uh, I'm super stoked to get this episode to you guys, so we're just going to dive right into it here. Well, this sucks. Rourke, I've been looking forward to uh, this day. I've had marked on the calendar for quite a while now. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. No, thanks for having me. I'm excited to do it and uh, getting into my favorite subject, so I'm all in. Yeah, definitely. So, Rourke, uh, most people already know who you are and, and, and your many accomplishments, but maybe you can just give us a quick elevator pitch intro. Yeah, I, uh, you know, I, I, I grew up in the Bay Area, California, uh, before it was absolutely Looney Tunes with tech and money and all that good stuff. Uh, I'm the uh, younger brother by three years. My dad, brother, and I spent um, as much time as we possibly could outdoors, love fishing, in, in particular fly fishing. You know, I had a fly fly rod in my hand before, uh, you know, most people start with uh, worm and bobber, and I, I started with dry flies and, you know, tight creeks and things like that. So I always loved outdoors, and, and, and my dad, brother, and I, like I said, connected through that. Uh, you know, struggled in school as, as a lot of active, aggressive kind of young lions do and, and um, had plenty of intellectual horsepower, but I, I just did not like the four walls of a uh, classroom. So I was always a, a big, big reader, but, you know, again, really struggled. And sports was kind of the place I found my footing. So um, I played every sport you could growing up. And then I got pretty serious about aquatics, playing water polo, which is big out on the West Coast. And then I started playing lacrosse, which in, in you know, uh, the United States and actually in Canada is an eastern seaboard um, type state, although you guys had, had probably better uh, coverage of, of lacrosse than than uh, than I did when I went to college. But I ended up getting recruited to play lacrosse out at Syracuse, which at the time was just a perennial superpower and, and heavyweight team and kind of in the hunt for the championship. And I got to play there four years and win a couple championships. And then as I was staring the the you know end line of, of my college time, I, I had no idea what I wanted to do next. And I hadn't really thought of the military um, with any like intense focus or desire. Uh, but my dad had sent me a copy of a book written by Winston Churchill, uh, the great, you know, British statesman. And something about that book really, really struck me as a calling that 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 earning my spot uh, in this country and uh, as a leader, that military service, particularly as an officer, would be the right place for me to start. And so I did a little bit of research. I uh, heard about this group of naval commandos down in Southern California where about 80 percent of the people uh, don't make it through. And, and, and the SEALs sound like the right the right spot for me. And uh, then I did a 20-year career, so I did 13 active duty years, seven uh, reserve years, just because I actually wanted to be around my bride and my girls at uh, at a point when that seemed far more important than um, 
you know, particularly having promoted out of kind of doing the fun assault team time type stuff, uh, but got very, very lucky by our standards, got lucky. I was, I was in um, uh, pre nine 11 for a couple of years and then, then the world obviously erupted and then we've been chasing bad guys ever since. So I was kind of in the heyday of that Iraq, Afghanistan, East and West Africa um, deployments, pre nine 11 to central and South America and, and all that time, you know, in a real aggressive combat unit. I finished my career running training for the SEALs, both basic and advanced, and then uh, came out of there and, and uh, had written a book, this movie, Act of Valor, that uh, actually I did when we were on on active duty orders to go make this movie, but it was kind of real SEALs trying to tell an authentic story. And and uh, and then, yeah, pitched out into the world, and now I do a lot of consulting on leadership and human performance and culture, things like that. And uh, amidst that, I grew into a hunter. So uh, hunting's now... Uh, probably my, my, my first passion, you know, second only to, to my family. I've, I've grown fanatical about it. And um, I had a very, we could talk about, but I had a very uh, lucky entrance into the hunting world compare, compared to most people uh, by getting to hunt with kind of a world-class hunter day one. But uh, that's, the, that's the elevator speech on, on me. Yeah, you definitely, uh, uh, let's just say you, you kind of cut the line and turn I cut the line. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. All the way, all the way to the front. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, man, I've got, I've got tons of questions for you, and you know, we could sit here all day and chat about everything you've done, but uh, we're just, we're not going to do that. Uh, no, good. I, I'd want to dive into the hunting a little bit, but you know, um, dying to hear a little bit of, of, uh, of what it was like in the seals. Now, you mentioned you went to officer training. Can you explain did, that yeah. a little bit? Because the military DNA down in the U.S. is a little different than it is up here in Canada. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So um, there's kind of three avenues, primary avenues, that somebody's going to become an officer in, in, in the U.S. military. That's either attending one of the academies, and this is pretty much across the board on all the all the services, Air Force, Army, Navy, Marines, uh, you know, Coast Guard as well. So, so the primary, you know, feeder programs for becoming an officer to start your career, you could go enlisted and then um, there's other programs to, uh, you know, transition to the officer corps from the enlisted ranks. But going direct, either attend one of the academies in, in, in the Navy, be the Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland, Army West Point out in New York, uh, and so on. Actually, Annapolis uh, would be for Navy and Marines uh, for officers. You can do a, a reserve officer training corps, what we call ROTC, at a regular four-year college where you'll be doing your regular degree and then also uh, doing military service or kind of preparation to enter into the military, and that's a direct commissioning source. And then the third is what's, what, what I did, which is called OCS, or Officer Candidate School. So you have to have a four-year degree. So I'm in the, the, the spring of my senior year at Syracuse. I will be graduating, you know, sometime that, um, that May. And then I walked into a recruiter's office and said, hey, I want to be a SEAL. I want to be an officer. And uh, after they stopped laughing because it's so hard to get, get an officer spot, uh, you kind of just put in an application to do both. Both, you, you know, take the academic and kind of physical test, both for the discipline you're going to enter into and then um, the, the, the specified requirements of being an officer in the military. And then you compete against everybody else from those different pools to try and get very, very coveted spots in the SEAL teams. And it, it took me two applications. I got turned down on my first application. It's, it's staggeringly competitive uh, to get one of these officer spots. But um, for OCS, you then go to a 13-week kind of officer school. Uh, then it was in Pensacola, Florida, which is kind of in the panhandle of Florida down in the United States. And then it's now back up in Newport, Rhode Island. But you basically learn to be an officer. You learn naval history and, you know, good order and discipline and naval law and and um, all that good stuff. And then, then you go to your specific school. So if you're going to be a pilot, you go to aviation school. If you're going to be a ship driver, you're going to go to a uh, surface warfare school. And for SEALs, you'll then go to San Diego, which is where our basic course is. And that's the that's the crucible and gauntlet that everybody must go through to, uh, you know, earn your spot in, in the, the warrior culture. And, uh, yeah, that's the path. That's the path. So you did all this before you did your – your training and, and yeah. you pick you pick SEAL training. Why why the Navy SEALs? You just you always just wanted to be cold and wet. So yeah, well, I, you know, I grew up. Uh, I'm, I'm, nice thing is, I probably had some genetic advantages in that. I'm almost always hot. I'm made to be in the North. You know, we've got uh, Irish and kind of 
uh, Viking bloodlines that run through our, you know, our kind of uh, genetic pool. So I'd much rather be cold than hot. So I had advantage and I'm never going to be doing the ab roller commercials to uh, sell a product. You know, I'm, a, I'm kind of a bigger, thick dude. So uh, the cold, I knew, I, you know, somebody else was going to quit before I was when it got cold. The wet, like I think like I told you earlier, I'd, I'd, I'd been involved in aquatics for a long time. So I was very comfortable, you know, with water pole, basically, you know, somebody trying to kill you and doing jujitsu in a pool. Um, so I felt very comfortable in the water. And, and, and to be honest, I, ju- I just love to compete. I love to play rough. There was very little known about the SEALs at that point. But, you know, from what I did know, they were getting called for, you know, the most elite missions, the toughest uh, skill set of, of things you could do. And then then also that 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 entrance you know, level attrition rate of 75 to 80% of the people don't get through. I said, well, you know, when I make it through this thing, I bet I'm going to find a peer group uh, that's going to be right up my alley. And that proved true. I, I just, I just found the perfect place to serve. And so that, that was the focus for the, for the SEAL teams as opposed to any other, any other unit. But, uh, you know, having done 20 years, I could have picked others that I would have had a lot of fun. I don't think any as much uh, personality wise that matched me as well as the SEALs. Was the military something that's in your family history? Yeah, my, my, uh, we have quite a few um, generational, actually pretty much all the way through, you could trace somebody in our bloodline that fought. And then in my most immediate circle, my dad's dad, um, sadly, was killed in the Pacific Theater of World War II as a B-24 Liberator guy. My mom's two brothers were both military. One was a jet pilot. One was a Navy uh, captain. And, and so military was sprinkled throughout our family. It wasn't directly, you know, my dad tried to enlist for Vietnam. And, and in that era, he, he had, you know, thick Coke bottle glasses. And they said, we don't have a spot for you right now. So you end up, end up going to law school. But uh, yeah, we, we had a extended service. And, and I've written quite a bit about how the military has really become a family business. If you talk to people that serve, it's um, it's more common than uncommon that they have somebody else in their family or multiple people in their family that served. It's, it's kind of interesting how that line seems to continue. Mm-hmm. So now, uh, SEAL training today, it, it's uh, it's legendary, and I think most of us have a pretty good idea of the obstacles uh, you face when when you face in SEAL training. But uh, yeah. can you just explain a bit of it from a guy who's actually gone through it all? Yeah, I mean, it's um, I think people have uh, the the probably misnomer that it, it it's um, it's all about you know the physical. There's a very good reason to think that if you looked at it from the outside or, or from a 50,000 foot view, you just see, you know, guys running in and out of the ocean being jackhammer shivering cold to where their buddy has to, you, you know, uh, button up their, their military blouse and so on. And, and um, you know, carrying logs, running with boats on your head, obstacle courses, swims, runs, push-ups, sit-ups, pull-ups, all the stuff that you'd imagine from a basic course within the military, what you find very quickly is it is much more a mental uh, and, for lack of a better term, spiritual game. What, what's in between your ears and, and beating in your chest is going to take you a lot further in that um, in that program than, than what, uh, you know, muscles you bring to the fight and kind of uh, physical resilience. You certainly need to have a body that takes a lot of punishment and can keep going, but it, it's much more – it's probably 90-10 mental to physical. And, and, and I think a lot of people – um, would have a hard time believing that it really is true. Now, now there's a screen test, so you don't get to show up there, you know, 60 pounds out of weight, out of weight, having eaten donuts and sitting on a couch to get to the program. So let's just start with people are fit when they get there. Um, but the real beauty of the program is you, you'll see, you know, particularly when you run the program, you come back and watch the young lions kind of crash against the rocks and see if they can make it. You know, you'll see some kid, um, and I used to say this to the students on on almost day one. You'd see some kids. Say, sitting in the classroom that looked like Michelangelo had chiseled him out of marble. His dad was a senator. He's, you know, got, he's a Rhodes Scholar, and he's got every advantage as a human being, basically skill set-wise, that you could have. And he'll hit that cold water on day one or two, and he'll quit. And then there'll be a kid that was sitting next to him that you had a little bit of baby fat, maybe came out of the Midwest, taught himself to swim because he wanted to be a SEAL, and we can't kill that guy with a conventional weapon. You know, he's just unstoppable. So it really – it really is your belief and your ability to look past the immediate suffering at that long range goal, which I, which I think is life. You know, it's, it's, it's damn sure hunting, you know, you got to suffer, suffer all these days to get that goal. I always, I talk in terms about hunting is like the worst until immediately it's not, you know, it's just those little moments of when it's not in my mind that make it so incredible, you know? 
Yeah, absolutely. And uh, anybody listening to this show can uh, has a, a good idea of what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. And another term that uh, you know we're all very familiar with, and and uh, sorry again, you know, you probably get this this uh, question all the time. But uh, what's Hell Week? Yeah, so that that's that, that's the true line in the sand. So you will have been at the program for. Um, really a couple months before you even get to Hell Week. And the only reason I, I preface that is, you know, it's early in the course over the long continuum of the program that takes you from about the day you start training almost a full year before you're going to earn your trident, become a SEAL, and actually go to an assault team. But very early in the course and first fa- the first phase of training, which is really just selection. We want to find out how tough you are, make sure you've got no quit, you can work as a team, take care of one another. Uh, this This line in the sand shows up that we call Hell Week. So Hell Week starts – on a Sunday night, uh, it, it starts with literally an explosion. The instructors come running in these tents with belt-fed, you know, uh, blank machine guns and simulation grenades, and you run out of those tents, and it's just on. It's just Armageddon physically, mentally, emotionally, cold, wet, sandy, miserable uh, until Friday when it ends. So it starts on Sunday. You'll go on a 24-hour clock with you and your teammates until it ends on Friday. You get your first sleep cycle on Wednesday, maybe about an hour and a half nap, uh, maybe a second nap on Thursday, and then it ends on Friday. So you're just going on a, on a 24-hour cycle uh, as wet and harsh as you can go uh, to just test. If, if there's anybody left to quit class that's not committed to the program is going to quit, we're going to find it that week. And so it's just a constant onslaught of three whole shifts of instructors just bringing the full weight to bear of their uh, both the curriculum and their personality uh, to find out if you got any weakness in you and, and you're not going to stick together and, and, and see the finish line. So I guess it's basically everything you see in the movies, they don't uh... – they don't uh, make up any of the difficulty or dramatize it for anybody. It's, uh, it's no, really that I think, hard. I think, if anything, they, they'd probably shortchange it. Because, again, you know, to capture anything on film that that is really playing on your spirit and your soul more than it is your body is, is, is hard to quantify or hard to, you know, hard to kind of show in, in a film. It, it really is a, a mental thing. And it, it's interesting, you know, the, the, the guys that make, I started with about 180 guys in my class. We graduated 22. And out of those 22 on the Friday we graduated, I'm very serious when I say I think 19 of them were absolutely convinced from the day they started they were going to see the finish line. Absolutely. Nothing, nothing anybody was going to do in that program was going to stop them from achieving their goal. I bet one or two was probably sitting there thinking, holy shit, I made it. You know, I mean, just kind of like surprise. But I mean, for the most part, um, the, the, the guys that are made to do that job and, 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 you know, I'm sure the, uh, years to come gals that will be part of it as well. They, they just know they can make it. They know it's made for them and they're not going to let anything stop them. Um, those that have any question or came to, you know, in air quotes, test themselves or find out who they are, uh, they won't be long for that program. We'll, we'll, we'll find that out real quick and, and you'll be going to do something else for a living. So is it the same as, as we see in the movies? They, uh, when you're out, you get up, you ring the bell and you, you put your helmet down along that long. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely is that bell. That bell is the uh, the kind of you know acknowledgement if you ring it three times that this program isn't for you. And one of the real interesting things that a lot of people you don't hear talking about is when that bell rings and you're not the one ringing it. It's almost this special. It's like the soundtrack of 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 seal training. You know, you hear that bell ring and you're like, well not me today and keep, keep grinding. And, uh, but yeah, that, that line of helmets is this big boneyard. Nick, it can wrap almost a full circle around, uh, around the training grounds. But yeah, the bell is omnipresent during hell week. They actually have a, a, a trailer hitch Jack that can hang the bell and travel with the class. They don't want you to, they don't want you to have to work too hard to quit. So it stays with you the entire time. Is there any significance to the bell? Well, uh, bells are are, um, are are deep, deep in Navy tradition, and, and both in lore and then also in, in in functionality. You know, we took that from the Brits. Uh, in that bells are, are still how on a ship, although it's it's you know a tone that comes over the uh, the microphone. Bells are how we pass time, you know, depth at times, you know, signal to when shifts are changing and watches are coming up and and, and daylight and, and 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 moon cycle and all that stuff. So bells are a huge part of the way naval ships have have uh, you know communicated both with themselves and and uh, other ships, and and so it's just a just a deep navy tradition that bells are kind of. Um, what we do. And the three is just, I think, just this 
you know, our, our stamp on, you're going to ring that three times, you know, resoundingly. And that, that means your journey is, has be, has ended at that point. Nice thing is for an enlisted guy, if you ring that bell, uh, you know, maybe you were 19 coming out of high school, just weren't ready maturity wise. You, you can stay in the Navy, distinguish yourself somewhere else, come back and give it another shot, which is not uncommon. It's not, it's not common, common, but it's not uncommon for somebody to take a second shot for officers in my position. If I didn't make it through, uh, you're, you're kind of on the red list and never getting a chance to come back. It's just too competitive to give uh, those guys another shot. So with that officer training backing up a bit, if you didn't pass that, what sort of options would you have from there? Uh, if I didn't pass the officer training in advance of SEAL training or SEAL training? If you didn't pass, like say you, you, you went through, you, you passed all your officer training, then you yeah. went on to SEAL training and you didn't pass. Yeah, kind of, in what my options era, do you have? Yeah, you bet. In my era, um, you were you were damn sure still in the Navy, so you had the rest of your you know whatever your four four year contract was. Uh, you still owed owed the Navy um, you know a pound of flesh in your time, so you would look for another assignment. I mean, you'd look to either go to surface warfare, or you could apply for aviation, you could apply for any other discipline. Um, usually, the folks, the officers in particular, will go to a, a, a real choice spot because frankly it's it, it's as competitive not the most competitive get your spot and seal so we try and make sure we help help facilitate that that you don't quit and all of a sudden now you feel like you're a failure or have nothing to give um so people go all different directions i mean i i've, I've mentored a couple young young lines that have gone through um several that have made it and a bunch bunch that haven't and and you know some of those guys have stayed the course and gone to intelligence or um, EOD or, or, or some other discipline and, and really enjoyed their time and found a good home. So I, I read somewhere that you, you not only completed uh, BUDS, which is, I think it's basic underwater demolition seals. Is that right? Yeah, right. Exactly right. Uh, you not only completed your seal training, but then you also went on and you did uh, ranger training as well. I did. Yeah. yeah. What's uh, what's up with that? Well, I showed up at my first SEAL team, and uh, it, there's there's really only two locations that you're going to go when you leave um, basic training in San Diego. You're just going to stay right there and walk basically across the street to one of the uh, one of the SEAL teams that's co-located there, or you're going to go back to Virginia Beach, Virginia, at a base called Little Creek, where we have the East Coast SEAL teams out there. So I went East Coast, and when I showed up, my first team, my first commanding officer, the first you know, you know commander in charge of SEAL Team Four was the team I went to. He had just come from um, one of our joint um, special operations commands and 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 at that era pre 9/11 the army really did have primacy over all special operations you know they had more people more units uh, more folks in leadership positions throughout all of special operations and he didn't want his junior officers in particular to not sort of have earned their you know bona bona fides with the army and kind of understand army language and behavior and what they believe in. So he sent all the junior officers of that command to Ranger School. So yeah, we just we just finished this crucible of getting you know hammered for eight nine months of SEAL training, and then they send you to the course where you know the army tries to get a bunch of people to quit in Ranger School. I, I really loved it. I love being in a in an army course. Um, I think they do basic soldiering skills. Uh, about as good as anybody. I like the leadership that came through it. I like to suffer. So, I mean, the fact of the matter is <laughs> I wasn't delighted when he said go, but when I got there, I was like, all right, this is my stuff. And, and so I just suffered through another one, but it, it paid huge dividends in my career. You know, I, I, I met guys there obviously, and this is very common for anybody that either went to an academy ROTC or then any joint school is, is you kind of, you think you're this young person that you'll, you'll, you'll never see these folks again. And I saw people from my ranger company, Rangers, school you know for the next 15 years on and off the battlefield which is very special to show up in a spot and be like oh man you know this guy and I really you know carried each other and helped each other through a tough time when we were brand new and now we're out in the battlefield together and um yeah it's a good feeling so I I felt lucky lucky to have uh you know got the ranger school experience and and kind of uh understand what they value that's yeah, yeah it's uh that's crazy not a lot of guys can do one never mind two of them well, I so, came back from that, and the commanding officer had changed out of my team, and the commanding officer that had taken over for the one that sent me to Ranger School, um, the next commanding officer was one of the best they ever worked for. He was a Marine in the Vietnam era, and he wanted me to go to Marine, like, <laughs> officer basic course. And I was like, boss, 
I'll do whatever you tell me to do. I mean, if you, if you, you tell me to go, I'm going. But this will now be three back-to-back joint schools before I ever get to become a warrior. And so, uh, to be honest, I think if the timing lined up, I would have gone and it didn't. But uh, I, thought, I, I guess in hindsight, I, I somewhat wish I did because I could say I went through damn near every course of instruction you could go through that uh, most people wouldn't. But uh, it didn't line up. <laughs> I almost did three. Yep. Oh, that's crazy. So, yeah. so after – so where did you – where were you off to next? Because, yeah, I mean, so I, what, what year was this? I, I don't think – this was pre-9-11, wasn't it? It was, yeah. This is 98-99. And then um, I did a couple deployments, mini deployments, and then a full deployment when 9-11 fo- unfolded. And uh, and then just, you know, the, the floodgates opened, obviously. I mean, it was, it was real interesting to have both experiences. You know, pre-9-11, we were doing a lot of what's called – FID, foreign internal defense, where you'd go to some other regional world, you'd work with a military counterpart, you'd teach them what you know, you'd share knowledge from what they know, um, often facilitate, you know, their their skill set and building, and, and, and those trips were great. I mean, a lot of fun. That time for me was Central and South America, so, you know, you're just having fun running amok in these countries where it was relatively dangerous with the drug t- trade and that stuff, but not catastrophically so, even that's, you know, sort of what we're looking for. And then 9-11 unfolded on, on that watch, and, and then it was – it was really just everybody kind of came home, reset, and started recognizing that things were about to get a whole lot more serious. And little did we know, you know, we're still in this fight, which is remarkable. But uh, yeah, from there, I, I deployed to, um, I deployed uh, on on a ship, actually kind of running operations for a team. We got to uh, attack targets and secure. Um, you know, American embassy out in Liberia on the Ivory, what, you know, Western coast of uh, the Ivory coast of Africa, when that country was far and apart, the Iraq war kicked off. So we launched up into there to start those operations. I came back from that deployment, transitioned to the West coast deployed with a, uh, as an assault team leader with a, with a combat team from SEAL team three to Al-Anbar province in 2006, which ended up being one of the more kind of famous, uh, I guess, regular SEAL team deployments with, with a bunch of, um, bunch of heroes getting the job done in that period of time. Very, very violent and aggressive deployment. And then I came back from that, did a little time over in Afghanistan, and then, then I'd somewhat at that point promoted out of doing the fun stuff and, and came back to run training and, and do some of the executive stuff before I made my way off active duty. Yeah, you were an instructor uh, at BUDS, that's that's correct. That's right. yeah. what, were, what were some of the nuances of somebody that, you know, who's gone through that, now you're somebody who's training these new SEALs and, and, and watching them go through through this. You know, what was what was real special about it is when I went through and my peer group went through SEAL training, you know, this is in 1998, all the instructors were great guys, fit, capable, you know, true purebred warriors, but they hadn't been to war. And that wasn't their fault. There just wasn't an enemy to chase at that point. So unless they'd done, you know, some real small, you know, relatively low intensity conflict out in Bosnia or, or had, had been in, you know, some other event kind of post Vietnam, none of those guys had actually been to the combat theater. I mean, they, they, they knew all the best techniques, tactics that we had in a vacuum when you're not at war. Uh, but when I came back, you know, as an instructor, I mean, my instructor cadre that was, you know, kind of bringing the curriculum to the students, I mean, very rarely were in dress uniform, but you could tell on graduation day, they'd look at the instructor's chest and be like, oh, my goodness. I mean, Purple Hearts, Bronze Stars, Silver Stars, multiple combat action ribbons, um, you know, guys that had really seen the bear and been in the fight. So it was fun to have instructors and also have my experience to talk to, you know, students coming up and say, hey, here's why we do this. This counts and we mean it. And and you could tell they'd be like, yes, sir. Sounds good yeah. because you should know, you know, so yeah. it was just fun being able to come back from that much combat time and really offer that up to the young lions and let them know, Hey, pay attention because uh, the, these lessons we're teaching you were written in blood. Yeah. I like that term lions. So was there any changes uh, from the time when you went through buds to the times you started training it? It's always changing. I mean, I think it's a program that's a living kind of program. It's always feeling the same pressures that the rest of the world is feeling, you know, whether it be politically or from the top leadership and down. And and I think people kind of lament, complain, whine, argue what the right way to do things is. And is it hard enough? Is it not hard enough? I think the nice thing about the program is, as, unless they move the program to Florida, where the water is, you know, 40 degree wa- 40 degrees warmer year round, you're still going to get, uh, I think, about the same results. The Pacific Current runs right up through San Diego, so I think everybody thinks San Diego is this beautiful Southern California, uh, you know, resort town, and, and the water in the in the summer it's 
points is in the 50s and and in the in the um you know maybe it breaks 60 and then in the winter it's it's high 40s 50s and just absolutely miserable so um it changes i i i don't like commenting too much on the people that are there now because it's their job and they're you know kind of they're the vanguard and the guardians of the the warrior culture now i think they've thrown a little bit more rigor on the instructors as to you know you can only do this many push-ups this many sets this many things at a time based on just kind of keeping it um, very standard for everybody's experience. When I went there, it was definitely still, I think, at the end of the Wild West where <laughs> the instructors could could go off the reservation and, and, and uh, uh, probably lose their compass bearing and, and, and be considered psychotic in what they made us do. And there's probably some value in that. And there's probably also value in having it a little more standardized because then, you know, if you have somebody that, that you need to actually drop from training, which we don't do all that much. Most people quit if they're, they're going to go. But if you have somebody that's not performing or meeting the standard and it's very standardized, you say, look, you did not meet the standard. It's time for you to go. Whereas when it's a little more artistic and freewheeling, they could probably make a little bit more of an argument that who knows, somebody had it out for them or something like that. But uh, yeah. I don't think it's chained precipitously. And I think, I think, you know, good warriors are still, are still running into the culture for sure. Yeah. So where does the movie Act of Valor come into view, or when does it come into view? Yeah, so I was uh, I was instructor there at the at Buds at the basic course, and the film company that made that movie was not initially contracted to do that. They came in to kind of help update our website. You know, SEALs at that point were not particularly marketing themselves, but we did have, unbeknownst to the world, uh, we were in a little bit of what we'd call recruiting depression or decline. We almost had more people getting out, aging out of the teams, moving on than we had young lions coming in at, at a rate that would keep the, the the organization healthy. And then with the tremendous demands on the battlefield for our guys and their skill set. Um, we really needed to fix it. We needed to get better, more candidates to the front door to get, you know, a competent product out the back door. So this film company came in to kind of do some footage with our boat crews and boat teams and some seals to just somewhat update the website. And then based on the footage they created, some meeting that I wasn't a part of greenlit uh, the idea of doing a movie. Now the initial concept was they do some interviews with us and then that film crew is going to go back up to Hollywood and, you know, cast Vin Diesel or whoever they're going to cast in the action world to be a seal and tell the story. And they, they asked a bunch of us, but they didn't ask. They told a bunch of us to go basically do interviews with the two directors of the movie, um, more or less, and not the interviews weren't going to go anywhere, but they're there just to kind of understand what we value, why we served, how we think about the job, each other, you know, war and combat and our skill set and, you know, how much we love the country and our families and why we do what we do. And based on the merit and kind of power of those interviews, the directors were like, Jesus, I think it'd be easier to teach SEALs to act than actors to be SEALs if we want to get this authentically done. And so they asked all of us to participate. Everybody said no to a man. Everybody that, that, that was in that movie initially said no. And then as the pro- program developed or the, the kind of plan for the movie developed, the senior leadership kind of said, hey, we do want the right people that have good reputations, both within the, 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 the brotherhood and the warrior culture and, you know, will show well on the outside um, to do this thing right. So we all got put on Navy orders, just like you get a set of orders to go to sniper school or comm school or language school. We had a set of orders that said we'd support the, you know, making of this film. We made it. We thought, of course, that thing was going to go to the bottom of a, you know, Walmart DVD bin and, and never see the light of day. And next thing you know, it releases right after, you know, our Super Bowl down here and uh, becomes the number one movie in America. So it, it, it took on a life of its own. But the, the film crew is incredible. They We told them the only way we were interested in doing it was if it was authentic. So, you know, snipers miss. People fall down. Missions don't go the way you expect them to go. It's not, you know, you can't like James Bond jump off a third story building, do a barrel roll into an Aston Martin and, you know, carry on with your day. That That's usually when you got to call a medevac. And they, they honored that. They put all that stuff in there and that, that made it doable. Yeah, that was a great movie, man. I went to that thing three times in theater. I just couldn't get enough of it. Yeah. So was there any uh was there any discord or, or mixed feelings inside the Navy about uh Navy SEALs uh, uh going on to, um, or making a movie and For sure, finish? for sure. Yeah, there was, eh? There always will be. I mean our, our you know, our guys are I mean, there is not a beta personality in the entire organization. So when you have an entire organization loaded with alphas, you're gonna um, you're gonna get some feedback no matter what you do. You could probably pass out, 
you know, duffel bags of a million dollars cash to everybody in the community and somebody would be pissed off about it. So, yeah, it's just one of those things where, where, um, and, and look, not, not wrong or right. I, 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 I wrestle this myself. I've written a couple books. I was in this movie and, and then I see a whole bunch of people that are in the public, uh, sphere that, that are seals and you kind of cringe because they're not the right person. And I very much try and hold myself to a standard that's almost higher than even what the Navy requires. I mean, I sent my, I sent my books to the Pentagon and had it scrubbed. That movie, we scrubbed every piece of, of tactic and procedure that, you know, we're not going to give a playbook to Al Qaeda. So we, we, we adjusted those things to make sure we weren't doing that. But, um, you know, I, I think one of the tough, uh, you know, somewhat kind of concepts, and, and I don't say it's right or wrong one way or the other, is if you don't tell your story, somebody else will. And, and if you don't also do so in a way that might get people excited to come participate, particularly in a world that seems to, to me, only be getting softer as opposed to getting harder, you know, you need those hard young men that want to come enter this, the ranks of what we do for a living. And you gotta, you gotta reach them somehow. And now the world is just, you know, you're just competing for the world's attention, whether it's social media or, or, or the news cycle, whatever it is. So it, it seemed like a big opportunity to tell our story authentically. And, you know, that book I told you about earlier, Winston Churchill, when I read that, that was my call. You know, I, I read that book and put it down and said, I'm going to the military. And that, that's, that's not, you know, I didn't gloss that up or, 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 you know, try and say that because it's just a good story. I read that book. That is why I served in the military. And so I've had quite a few young guys reach out and say, Hey, on your book, you know, I, I want to go serve, or I saw the movie I want to serve. And, you know, that's a good result. But yeah, there's guys that are always going to have a problem with it. And the nice thing is for the most part, the feedback, you know, I've made, I mean, I'm sure somebody, somebody probably hates me because I did it and, and, you know, I'm, I'm not going to lose sleep over it, but I also respect their opinion. And a whole bunch of guys said, Hey, I might not even been for it, but I'm glad it was you. I mean, I'm glad we didn't have knuckle knuckleheads in there representing the community and, and, and you guys did a good job. And, you know, everybody in there has a great reputation and has done the job well. So yeah, there's always going to be, there's always going to be, you know, the, the contrarian view for sure. Yeah. One cool fact I learned about that movie was that a lot of it was based on, on actual events that uh, that SEALs had gone through. Exactly right. Yeah, very few people know it. I don't think they did a good job of kind of highlighting that. Maybe that was deliberate. But, yeah, um, you know, somebody jumping on a grenade to save teammates, somebody getting shot 27 times and walking to the helicopter, somebody getting hit with an RPG that didn't go off, all these different moments. Um, that's why we called it Act of Valor, Acts of Valor. It was it was real things cherry picked out of our our warrior history thrown into the movie, and we tried to pay you know great honor and homage to that. Yeah, definitely. So did you you uh, I assume you guys all attended the the red carpet opening, all dressed in uh, showed up no, in uniform. You're talking about a very hot button night, yes. <laughs> but right before we were there in Hollywood to do it all the senior leadership started freaking out, like both Navy and I think up the chain of command. They're like, what are we doing? We got special operators that are now going to what walk the red carpet with, you know, the Hollywood elites or whatever. So it's pretty funny. All our gals had gotten, you know, their, 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 their best gowns and best shoes on and their hair done or ready to go. And we actually about two minutes before we were supposed to walk the red carpet, we kind of had a senior leader be like, "Now nah, you can't do it. You can't do it. And I said, uh, I said, nope, totally understand. And we walked directly up to that carpet and walked it anyway. I was like, there is no way after all the bullshit my bride has put up with, she's not going to get this experience. So we somewhat, we somewhat didn't follow orders that night. The funny <laughs> thing was it never really made the light of day because as we're going through there, you know, the, the cameramen are taking, they don't know who we are. <laughs> they didn't even know yeah. who they're taking pictures of. So I feel like we kind of got away with one without, uh, without completely ruining our careers doing so. But yeah, we were there for it. And it was, uh, it was bizarre, man. I mean, you know, you hear yourself on a, you know, I, I don't know if you feel the same way, but you hear your own voice, you know, being recorded on an answer machine on our show. And you're like, man, wish I had a little more bass in my voice, or I wish I didn't sound like that. You know, it doesn't sound good to your own yeah. ears. And then you're like, imagine seeing yourself 40 feet tall on a screen doing that. It's a nightmare. I, I, I see why actors don't, you know, a lot don't watch their own stuff. Cause it's, it's torture, man. It's torture. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But uh man, that's pretty cool. That's uh that's awesome. So you got uh you're married, you got two two girls and you mentioned they were part of the your decision in, in leaving. Was it hard to move on from, from military life? Yeah, it was. I mean it wasn't hard, I feel like, at the time. I felt like I was lucky in that I, I got a lot of combat time for the, the you know, the, the, depo the deployments I got to be on. I got to see a lot of the world. I answered a lot of the questions I wanted to ask answer about 
you know, the most hideous things you can engage in as a human and, and I think as a man out on the battlefield. And so I felt like I'd answered those questions and turned over those stones and was very lucky in that both I survived it uh, physically and also emotionally. I, I sleep really well. I don't, you know, suffer from combat stress or any of that stuff. I, I feel like I was, you know, somewhat well designed to do that job. And I love the leadership and I love the sublime relationships of, of the teammates and friends I was with. So I, I left, um, I guess I left easily. You know, I, I knew it was time to go. I wanted to be around my bride and my girls and I wanted to get in new adventures. Um, it's taken a few years to realize that it was a big departure. I mean, I, I like I said, I, I feel like it was somewhat a perfect job for me. I don't know if the next 15, 20 years would have been, um, but I do miss the boys. I miss the rigor and the discipline. I miss the organization of it. I miss the purpose of doing that job. Um, I'm certainly trying to create that in my next life. But uh, if I ever get if I ever get equal to the purpose of that job, I'll know I really will have sunk my teeth into something special because it's it's unique. It's unique to serve and and, and to feel like the cause is is worth um, the suffering. So. Um, yes, I left relatively easy and I actually had a pretty, you know, a, a pretty solid path as far as, you know, speaking and consulting and doing some of these things. So I had a pretty, a pretty fluid transition. But, um, I think now at the, you know, approaching a 10 year mark of being gone, I miss things that, that I, I probably didn't realize I was going to miss, but, uh, no regrets. I'm not much of a look back person. Yeah. Um, yeah. so moving forward, you got to, uh, where we talked about there, you kind of cut the front of the line there. You got to join Renella on a, <laughs> yeah. a bear hunting trip to Alaska, which uh, yeah. I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, that was your first big game hunt? It really was. It really was. Yeah, you're not kidding. I mean, talk about jumping to the head of the line. I, I was doing a little bit of work with Sog Knives. Uh, Steve was doing some work with Sog Knives at that point, and one of the leaders or leadership at Sog asked, you know, he and I to somewhat give a, a, a talk about knives and the intersection of, you know, my experience with knives, obviously, in the military, his in the hunting world, out at SHOT Show. So it's me, Steve, uh you know, the gunny from uh, Full Metal Jacket and all of us are out there kind of talking about knives through SOG. And Steve and I just hit it up. You know, he's a real cerebral guy and a reader, obviously, and a writer. And I, I'm I'm pretty similar, you know, personality-wise. I like doing these rough, aggressive things. But then I also like the philosophy and the, you know, the, the kind of higher ideals that are connected to it. And I think that's why his show and his personality has jumped so resolutely off the page, as you can tell, you're just dealing with a different personality type than just a good old boy that likes, you know, shooting at deer. I mean, he obviously talks about it in a way that is is eloquent and, 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 and you know, has so much conservation and good mindset behind it, and he, he shows his faults. And, and so we just hit it off kind of immediately. And then he asked me if I'd hunt it. I said, you know, I grew up fishing, but I didn't hunt. Well, I mean, I've been hunting two-legged critters up in the mountains of Afghanistan, but I'm not <laughs> – I haven't hunted big game. And he said, uh, well, we'd love to, lo- love to take. And so, yeah, getting to the Alaska range in the in in view of uh, Denali and hunting bear with your first hunt with with Steve Rennell is is not exactly uh, uh, the the back end of the bus to start your hunting career. So pretty incredible. Definitely. So when you're planning this hunt, was uh, was a lot of it familiar to you? Well, that, that, that's when I knew I'd found something almost before it began is, is, you know, like Giannis sent me, um, um, you know, sent me coordinates where we're going. He sent me a gear list. He sent, you know, a bunch of gear that I could use for the hunt. And, and it was just like, as soon as I started, you know, pouring over maps and look at the weather, look at the terrain, uh, you know, get my gear prep, pack my ruck, then unpack it. Cause I know I forgot something, pack it again. I was like, man, this is, this couldn't be more familiar. And then, you know, all the logistics, obviously getting up there, you know, you got to take a big plane to a float plane to a smaller float plane. And then, you, you know, all of a sudden you're, you're staying in a cabin that's got grizz claw marks on the door and you're, you're about as far into the wilderness as you can be with a guy that, you know, homesteaded this property, taking 12 horses over the Alaska range in the seventies. You're just like, man, this is good stuff. And so as soon as we, as soon as I kind of loaded, loaded my gun and, and, and stepped off into, dangerous country i i knew i'd be a hunter for life and then to have steve be your you know your mentor and your guide uh obviously ups the stakes even more and and, and it could have been more incredible first hunt i mean they broke it into two episodes because so many good things happened but you know we hunted hard for every bit of six days and we're kind of at that point where it's like hey we, we we are going down to the plane here by tomorrow morning there, there is no more time and um 
you know, we covered, I'm, I mean, you know, you know, Steve and that crew are not scared of going up and down mountains. So me as a, you know, 240 pound linebacker, dude, I'm just like trying to run up and down hills with those billy goats, you know, but, uh, you know, I like that stuff. And you're just, you know, banging up against devil club and running through the alders the whole time thinking a grizz is going to come out and scratch you up. And, uh, and we actually, we saw more, I think we saw more, um, grizz than we did black bear, but the last, I mean, talking about the last hour of the last opportunity before we had to pick, pick, pick up and roll. Giannis actually spotted a, a big boar kind of up the hill and, and worst case scenario. I mean, this thing was uphill of us. Wind is going directly at that thing's face. And we all just kind of jumped up and ran up into a spot where we thought we might get in a clearing. Steve starts hammering on a, you know, rabbit call. And I could tell the producers and Giannis like, man, we're going to get the wrong bear to come running in here. We're going to be in a gunfight, not, not a hunt. Um, but sure enough, that bear came into like 80 yards and I had an incredible shot and we, we, we got it done. It, it was just an unreal experience. Yeah. 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 And I think most of us have seen that episode of the mediator. And, uh, I think, I think there's one point there when you kind of glance, uh, right before you guys spotted the bear, where you, you kind of glance at your, your watch there. Oh yeah. Yeah. Cutting down to the wire for sure. No, it was torture because, you know, you put in I, – I think there's a component of my personality that I, I can't undo, and it's 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 probably not a healthy one in the hunting space because you can do – it's the same thing in combat. You can do everything right and go catastrophically wrong. But there's this component in my life where I'm just like – I feel like if you, if you work hard enough, you put in the work, you should get paid. I, I just feel like that's – how it should go. But we all know that's not the case. You could, you could go up, you know, for 14 days, 17 days up in, you know, the Alaska range going after goats or rams and obviously never see one. But we, we had put in about as much work. I could tell Steve was feeling the burn bad. I know he wanted to give me a good experience. And, and look, if you need to, you need to get the trophy or the, the final shot for it to be a good experience, it's not for you. But you do want to have the full, you know, the full Monty all the way through. And so I could tell he was stressed. I was definitely pretty bummed, you know, putting in that much, <laughs> that much time. And uh, to have it come together at the end like that is, is something special, obviously. Yeah, it was great. So I guess, uh, so hunting now, it's something you consider a, a regular part of your life? Oh, no, it's, I mean, it's beyond that. It, it, it's probably at a point where I need to figure out a way to make it a job. I, I like it so much. And I, maybe the job hurts it. But I, I'm fanatical about it. I mean, ever since that hunt, um, you know, I hunt elk, mule deer, whitetail, pigs, uh, turkeys, you know, upland game. There's almost nothing I'm, I'm, I'm not game to go after. And, and, and it really comes down to the good, the good people to go do it with it and the opportunities that come up to um, chase it. But I'm lucky to live in a place where there's, incredible game opportunities and I'm I'm you know driving distance to states that are some of the most desired in the you know certainly the lower uh the lower 48 so yeah it's 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 a special place to be and and um it has truly become a passion so I just got back from a uh, a turkey hunt for eastern birds out in Kentucky where my bride's from and was able to um, take a big old double bearded long spurred warbird kind of on my own first time and um Really, really cool. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm fanatical about it. That's awesome. I got kind of a two part question here. One, uh, you know, has hunting helped you as a veteran, you know, transition, I guess, post war? And two, how so? A hundred percent, yes. Uh, much as we all described from that, that hunt with, with Steve, where, where it, it's just familiar, um, procedures and familiar, you know, kind of requirements for the job. You got to be fit. You got to be focused. You got to practice with your weapon system that you're going to use and, and get that to a level of proficiency or excellence that you feel like you can do right, you know, both by what you're trying to achieve and then obviously right by the animal. Um, you need to, you know, pay attention to gear, weather, terrain, logistics, all these things that we did in the military and you get very, very comfortable with. All of a sudden you get to replicate. Now you get to also get to a beautiful place, not like the places. I mean, I actually thought the deserts of Iraq and the mountains of Afghanistan were stunningly beautiful. They were horrific and hideous with what we were doing there, but beautiful nonetheless. And so going to beautiful country and now um, chasing uh, uh, or pursuing a game or a quarry or a target 
that then you get to put on your table and, you know, feed, feed yourself, feed your kids and um, really enjoy, uh, I, I think is just an unbelievable transition. I talk to veterans all the time about it. I'm like, if you're not hunting, you need to really think about it just because of these parallels that we pl- practice to such a high level of excellence and intensity, you get to replicate it now and do so in a very healthy way, in a way that even goes beyond, you know, your kind of spiritual mental health, but your physical health and all the good things that are connected to it. So, yeah, I think it's, um, I think it's very much helped me and, and I wouldn't be able to not do it. I think at this point, if I tried, I not an issue because I love it so much. Um, but I highly recommend it to anyone that served uh, as being a great kind of useful application of those things we um, train to and learn to do um, sort of in your post-military life. Yeah, it's a gift. It's a gift. Yeah, it definitely is. You guys get out uh, with your family at all? Yeah, I mean, my, uh, my, my, I got young, you know, or now, now right in the window of time, um, age daughters that I think are both going to be at least interested. I think, um, uh, I'll be interested to see if both really want to do the, the full meal deal, but they're starting to shoot and starting to spend more time. You know, we do a lot of camping and outdoors time, but I think they're right kind of at that, you know, threshold where I want to get them, you know, shooting at critters if they want to. And so um, it, it's real fun to kind of be looking at probably next season will be the first season where I really do kind of get them out on the youth hunts and spend more time with me in the field. And I think uh, one of my daughters, she's she's kind of chopping at the bit right now to get out with me um, for turkey. So I'll take her for a couple sits this spring as well. And, and um, my bride's fished with me. She hasn't done any of the hunt, but I think she's kind of always wanted to dip her toe in. So she might, might try a little bit as well. And I just want them to do, you know, to pursue the things they want to pursue. There's just so many good lessons that come out of hunting that, that I think there's so much to teach through it, what, what, you know, both with shooting and preparation and, and uh, you know, the highs and lows and peaks and valleys of the experience. I think there's a lot to be taught and learned there. So yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll lean on a little more as they get bigger, you know, more capable and, and can spend more time in tougher ground. Yeah, no, I definitely hear what you're saying there. I got, uh, kids of my own so but uh anyway Rourke uh you know uh I know you're a busy guy and you got a lot going on so I'm gonna uh gonna wrap this up but uh again thanks for taking a bit of time and chat with me here today no I've enjoyed it I really appreciate the conversation been great and you know do it again uh, another year or so I'll have even more of these things under my belt we'll have more to talk about yeah you know if you ever want to come up to British Columbia and chase moose or any other big game animal shoot me an email and uh and we'll see what we can do for you no, I'll hold you to it. I'll definitely drop you a line after this thing. Let's figure out a way to get in the field. It'd be great. You got a few things going on, a um, few books, damn few, worth dying for. People can pick those up, I think, on Amazon and, and uh, a few other places. Uh, Active Valor, we can watch you. And, and where else can people uh, keep tabs on Rourke Denver? Yeah, people can go to – I've got my own website, which is RourkeDenver.com, just my name, RourkeDenver.com, and uh, my site's kind of – it's called Ever Onward, and I put out these once-a-month Commander Coffees where, where you know, I just I just do a little video uh, to talk about a principle or a concept, whether it be about leadership or pushing yourself uh, once a month, a bunch of good content on there. This podcast will get put up there for sure, and, and uh, yeah, that's a great place to uh, reach me, and then more stuff coming soon. I've got a couple other irons in the fire, and we'll see where it all goes. Okay, sir. Thank you very much for your time. Talk to you later. You believe that? Wow. I guess it's all worth it.